Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Father God, I just thank you so much for this time and the opportunity this morning to come together. I pray, Lord, that as we sit down and open up your word, that you've already begun to prepare our hearts to be that fertile soil, to receive the good word, the good seed, Lord. Uh, I pray that uh, you would just take over the service this morning, Lord, the things that I've prepared, Lord, let them be directly from you. Lord, in fact, let me just be so small um, that, that this church sees you standing here this morning. Lord, thank you, Jesus, so much. And in your name we pray, amen, amen. Well, in my Bible, this is called the gospel according to Matthew, not the gospel of Matthew, because this isn't Matthew's gospel. This is the gospel of Jesus that Matthew has taken the time to write down for our sakes, and not just for ours, for many people throughout history, but for ours today. There isn't any real debate uh, on the fact that Matthew is the author of this gospel, and it is widely believed that he wrote this in Aramaic, which was a very common language at the time. There are some who believe that maybe he wrote this in Hebrew, but there isn't a lot of evidence to support the fact that he wrote this in Hebrew. In fact, there are no original Hebrew manuscripts ever found of the gospel of Matthew, or according to Matthew. Um, it's also generally believed that he wrote this sometime around 50 AD, which, um, do you know, is only 20 or so years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it was like right after. It was like Matthew was an eyewitness to all of that, what he's going to write about. You know, some of the other gospels, the gospel of Mark and the gospel of Luke, which are also what's called synoptic gospels or kind of the, the retelling of the story. Mark and Luke were not apostles. Mark and Luke were not eyewitnesses. In fact, Mark's gospel is basically him sitting down with Peter and writing down everything that Peter told him. And Luke essentially did the same thing. Luke went out and interviewed all these other people who were with Jesus at the time and recorded his gospel. But Matthew's gospel, he was there. He walked with Jesus. And so he writes down his gospel or the, he writes down his account of it. So who was Matthew? We know uh, from the word that Matthew's Hebrew name was Levi and that Matthew was a tax collector. We know that because in chapter 9, when Jesus calls him to follow him, he is in his tax collector's booth. And so he leaves that. Now, um, what was a tax collector at this time? Um, if you, how many of you guys have seen the, cho the, the Chosen show? Okay. I actually do really love the show. Um, but I'm not sure they really got the Matthew character right. Um, in the show, Matthew is kind of portrayed as this like, almost like an idiot savant type of like, just really good with numbers. And that's why he was kind of into this lifestyle because he had a, a propensity for numbers and is, is, is like just about that. But in fact, the deal with tax collectors in the, at this time especially was that they were occupied, the Jerusalem and the, and the whole area was occupied by the Roman government. They weren't wanted there, but because they were such a force, they were there, and they were imposing themselves on the people who were there. And, and part of the imposition was they were collecting taxes from the people. 
In order to do that, the Romans would hire Jews to be their tax collectors. So right away, the Jewish people looked at any Jewish man who was a tax collector as helping the oppressor enemy of their nation. And so they did not like that at all. Now, you get that from the show. What you don't get is that the reason why a person would become a tax collector is because they loved money more than even their family. If you became a tax collector, your family would disown you. All right, they didn't want anything to do with you. You weren't allowed to go to the synagogue. You were disowned by the entire community. In fact, it was even taught by the rabbis that um, it was okay and even lawful to lie to a tax collector. And tax collectors were so motivated by, by uh, financial gain that they were willing to let go of everything else in their life to be a tax collector. The reason why they were so hated on top of just that was because Rome would say to a tax collector, you need to collect and give to us this amount of money. Anything that you can get beyond that, you get to keep. So now their motivation was, I will overtax my fellow Jews so that I can become rich in the process. And that's exactly what they did. Now, the Jews knew that they were being overtaxed by these tax collectors, but they didn't know how much. But the idea was they understood that they were being overtaxed by a fellow Jew for the sake of the Roman government and for the, to fill their own pockets. And so you understand that tax collectors weren't just hated because they were tax collectors for Rome, but that they were being cheated. They were cheating their own people just so they could become more and more wealthy. That's Matthew. Now, there were two kinds of tax collectors at this time. There was the tax collector that Matthew was, which was the kind of person that I just described. And then there was the chief tax collector who was over those tax collectors. And it was like he was the one who was supervising all these lower end tax collectors. And we know one of those guys, too. His name is Zacchaeus. We can read about him in the gospel also. And he, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. I can see some of you are mouthing the words with me because you also grew up in Sunday school. He climbed up in a sycamore tree to see what he could see. You see, and as the Lord came passing by, that's the song, and that's Zacchaeus. Now, here's the really cool part. Whatever it was that they heard Jesus say to the masses had such a profound impact on them that both Zacchaeus and Matthew, when they were called, left their, their occupation of tax collector. In fact, the very thing that they loved the most, money, ended up not actually being an obstacle to following Jesus, which is mind-blowing to me because they had forsaken everything else for the sake of money. In fact, we read about Zacchaeus. What he says is, I'm going to give back everything that I cheated. And if I cheated somebody, I'm going to give them like four times what I took from them. He's completely turned around. I don't know what it is that Matthew heard, and I don't know when it was. If you read in chapter 9, we'll get there, about his uh, change, uh, his calling from Jesus to follow him. It's very abrupt. It's very abrupt in chapter 9. It says that he was in his tax collector's booth, and Jesus came up and said, follow me. And he said, okay, and he left and walked away. And it probably wasn't, like, that's not all of the detail. There must have been at some point an opportunity for Matthew to hear Jesus speak enough so that it started to get into him and change him so that when Jesus came up and said, follow me, he said, I'm out. 
I forsake all of this and I will follow this man because of whatever it is that I have heard him say. He was profoundly changed, so much so that he writes this gospel to the Jews. Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. The terms he uses, he writes, he writes about some Jewish culture that he doesn't even bother to explain because the assumption is they'll know what I'm talking about because they're Jewish. Where Mark and Luke, they say, um, well, they did this, and the reason they did this was because of this. And they explain because they're writing to primarily Gentile audiences. But Matthew is so changed that he is desperately trying to convince an audience who hates him, rejects him, so he wants them so badly to believe that Jesus is the prophesied Messiah that he writes this. That is the sign of a changed heart. That is someone who has been so changed that he says, even though you rejected me and hated me for who I was, I'm not that person anymore because of Jesus. And I want you to know that so badly that I'm going to write this letter to you. That's a changed life. That is forgiveness for sure. So because Matthew is primarily writing to Jews, he starts this gospel record with a genealogy. Yay! (laughs) And he's going to show through this genealogy that Jesus is in the line of David, which means that he can be a king. He's also going to use the phrase throughout the gospel so that it might be fulfilled to show that Jesus is also the long-awaited Messiah. Now, I did mention the, there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and... All right, you guys are quicker than that 9 o'clock group. They're like, mm. <laughs> Matthew, Mark, and Luke are considered synoptic Gospels. That means seen together, which means they're, they're very similar to one another. They, they kind of tell a story kind of from the beginning to the end, where John takes a slightly different viewpoint um, and tells it almost from an above kind of point of view rather than a, a synoptic or a, a, a chronological uh, point of view. Where Mark and Luke are very chronological, actually, Matthew is more thematic order than chronologic. Meaning he talks about certain themes and stories, not necessarily in the same order or in the order that they happened, but rather uh, what he feels are like really important things. And you know that sometimes there is some criticism about the Gospels, the fact that they're not all exactly the same. They have some different details. Some stories are left out of some other ones. Uh, Again, they're not necessarily happening in the same order. And people will look at that and they'll say, see, that's proof that none of this is true because they couldn't get their story straight. They should all line up exactly right. And I would say, actually, it's the other way around. If they were all exactly the same, then you would say that's completely bogus. Let me give you an example. Let's pretend that Pastor Jeff and Cesar and I all today decided to go to Culver's for lunch. (laughs) Now, on the way to Culver's, we witness 
a car accident at the intersection of Airport Pulling Road and the entryway to um, that plaza where Culver's is. Now, when the police show up and they start interviewing witnesses about what happened, Cesar might say, because he's very ordered, we were driving, there was a light, a car came up beside us, he didn't stop for the light, this car came out when it turned, he's bashed into him, the, you know, the wheels came off, this person was hurt, um, and, and that's the order of events that happened. It's all true. Now, then they might ask me, and I'm ordered, but I'm also more on the, you know, I'm a little less ordered than Cesar, maybe a little more on the creative side. And so I might say, yes, we were driving up, the light turned red. There was this car that came on. I mean, it was like this blue Ford Bronco, you know, it's got that roof that does, it was really cool. And next to me over here also, I was like, there's a Bentley right there. And man, that's like the third one I've seen today. And then the light changed, and this guy came flying through it as well. And I don't even know if he was looking, because I always wait a minute before the light turns green. <laughs> same details. I mean, same story, same event, slightly different details. Now, you get to Pastor Jeff, and he's, you know, musical and creative. And he might say, well, there was a crash. And there was this car, and then this car. And then I saw a car that was on the other side, too. And he looked like he, might gonna, he was going to go through it, but he stopped just in time. And I also remember, and we were at the light back behind me, and there was a guy in this blue Bronco, and he was like right up on me, and then he pulled out. And see, now, now that's not in order, but it's part of the event, right? And so all of that is about the same event, but slightly varying details. The order might not be the same, but it's still true. That's the Gospels. Now, if you were to come to me and show me four different account, four accounts of the same event, and they were exactly the same, I'd be like, mm, no, they got together and they got a story set. Not they were witnesses to the same event, because there's, but there's slightly different details here. See, so I look at that kind of a thing as proof that this really happened, that they really saw this. So, Matthew chapter 1. Verse 1. In fact, I'm going to just try and, like, we're going to go through this genealogy, and they're great, aren't they? Genealogies are fantastic. I'm going to read through the whole thing, and I'm going to come back. So let's try this, okay? I take that back. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to read the first verse first. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Genealogy, the word means origin. He's saying the origin... Of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It's interesting he mentions the son of David first. But this was the idea that the Messiah was prophesied to come through the line of David. In fact, I'm going to turn over. You could jot this down or just listen. Um, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. This is God um, speaking through the prophet to David. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you. Who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom? He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Messianic prophecy saying the Messiah will come through the line of David. Very first thing that Matthew, who was trying to convince people that Jesus is the Messiah, says that he is the son of David. He's going to prove it in a minute. But then he also says the son of Abraham. It was extremely important that the Messiah was a Jew, And so saying that he was the son of Abraham, that was what they claimed. Every Jew said, we're a son of Abraham. That was how they traced their Jewish lineage was, we are sons of Abraham. Now, now the genealogy. Abraham begot Isaac. We good so far? Everybody good? Hang on just a second. Abraham begot Isaac. 
Isaac begot Jacob. Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah and his brothers, by the way, you know who they are? The 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 tribes. Judah and 11 brothers make up the 12 tribes. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nation, Nation, and Nation begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab, and Rahab, uh, Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot, begot Solomon, by, whom, by her whom had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam, Rehoboam begot Abijah, Abijah begot Asa, Asa begot Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat begot Joram, and Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham, Jotham begot Ahaz, Ahaz begot Hezekiah, and Hezekiah begot Manasseh. Manasseh begot Ammon, and Ammon begot Josiah, Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. After they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shatiel, Shatiel begot Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel begot Abiud, Abiud begot Eliakim, Eliakim begot Azor, Azor begot Zadok, Zadok begot Achim, Achim begot Eliud, Eliud begot Eleazar, Eleazar begot Mathan, Mathan begot Jacob, Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary. (sighs) There you go, yes, yes. All right. The genealogy of Jesus. Now, now let's look at a couple of things that are very interesting to me. Um, right away, God bless you, right away, verse 3, Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Stop for a minute. There are four women in the genealogy of Jesus Christ that are listed right here, one right after the other. Now, listing women's na- by name in a genealogy was pretty uncommon at this time. But what's even more uncommon was the listing of non-Jewish women. Tamar was a Canaanite. So for a Canaanite woman to be listed by name in a genealogy was incredibly rare. And as we're going to find, very, very significant. Now, do you remember Tamar? This says, Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. This is what happened. This is, you can read about this in where? <laughs> I know, Genesis 38. And, and so Judah, it says, leaves his brothers to go and find a wife in the land of Canaan. And he goes there and he meets this woman. Um, and they have three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. So after a number of years, Judah's wife passes away, and it's just him and his three sons. Well, he decides it's about time for, he, for him to find a wife for his oldest son, Ur. Now he goes out, and he looks for a Canaanite woman to marry his son, Ur, and he meets this woman, Tamar, and the two of them are married. Now before Ur and Tamar can have children, Ur dies. In fact, it says that he was so wicked that God kills him. That's wicked. You have to be really wicked for God to kill you. Now, the rule was that if you were married and you didn't have any sons to carry on your name, 
your, and you died, your brother was to marry your wife and have a son for you that would carry on your name. And so Judah goes to his next oldest son, Onan, and he says, you need to marry Tamar and you need to have a son for the sake of your brother's name. And so Onan marries Tamar, but he is not interested in having a son with her for his brother. And so he chooses not to, and God is upset with him and kills him too. Now Judah goes to Tamar and says, you know, you're kind of hard on my sons. I keep losing them. And, and, and Shayla's pretty young. Shayla's pretty young. So, um, so instead of marrying him right now, why don't you just wait? Why don't you go home to your father's house and be a widow until he's a little bit older of the marrying age, and then we'll, we'll come back and we'll revisit this, this uh, understanding. So that's what she does. Now, it says in the course of time... Um, Judah goes to um, shear his sheep. There was a place that he had to go to take all his sheep where they would go and and shear his sheep. And um, he has not by this time fulfilled the promise to Tamar to give her his son, Selah, as a husband. And so she's still just sitting in her father's house as a widow all this time, not, not receiving the promise of Judah. And so she decides that what she'll do is she'll find a place on the road where she knows he's going to be passing back. And she goes and she dresses herself as a harlot, putting on a veil to cover her face. And so she's sitting alongside the road, waiting for Judah to come. And as he's done at the sheep shearing party, he's walking back home and he comes across this harlot along the side of the road. And uh, he says, hey, what, you know, I would like to come into you. And she says, well, what will you give me? And Judah says, how about a goat? I guess that was the thing. It's like, she says, all right. And he's like, you know what? I left all my goats at home. How about this? When I get home, I'll send a goat right on over. So she says, okay, but I need some kind of a promise from you, some symbol or something that you're actually going to fulfill this. And so he says, okay, here's my signet ring and here's my belt and here's my staff. And she, he gives him all this stuff. And then, and then he goes in with her. You know what I mean? He goes in with her, everybody. It's, it's like a conjugal term. Okay. And then he goes home afterwards. Now, when he gets home, it seems like maybe he's a little embarrassed to go back at this point. So he sends his friend back with the goat. Um, now, his friend can't find her because she's not really a harlot who sits on the side of the road. She was trying to get something from him, Right. So she's not there anymore. So the friend is like asking around and saying, where's the harlot that sits by the road? And they're like, there's no harlot that sits by this road. And he's like, wow, that's weird. I think I'll keep the goat. And off he goes. Now, like three or four months later, it's, it comes to Judah's attention that Tamar now, she's pregnant. Now, he doesn't know it was her on the side of the road. And so the first thing he says, well, bring her out so that she can be burned because, well, she's now pregnant by somebody who's not her husband. And all of a sudden now he's like, oh, well, she's supposed to marry my son. And now she's pregnant by somebody else. She needs to suffer the consequences. So out comes Tamar and she says, oh, um, the person that got me pregnant is the owner of this ring, this belt, and this staff. And Judah looks at him and he's like... He says this, you are more righteous than I am. So apparently he then takes her as his own wife and they have Perez and Zer. Now there's a really interesting stuff in there about how Perez, they're twins. Perez starts to come out first 
and then the midwife ties a red string around his wrist. I guess he's coming out hand first. And, uh, and then he pulls it back in, and then the other twin comes out before him, and then he comes out, but that's how they're able to determine that he was the firstborn, technically, because he came out, and then was like, nope, too cold, and went back in <laughs> again, apparently, something like that. But that's who we got. So then it says, Perez begot Hezron. Hezron begot Ram, and Anadibadibadab. <laughs> and, and Salmon, and Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Another woman, a notorious sinner. That's what many commentators refer to these women as notorious sinners. If you don't remember, Rahab was a harlot, an actual harlot, not a pretend one, who lived in Jericho. Right? She lived on the wall of Jericho. And so when the Israelites came and they sent spies into Jericho to see if it was a city that they could overtake, she hid them in her house. Um, and when the king came to her and says, we heard that there were Jewish spies here spying out the city. Do you know where they are? And she says, uh, well, I did see them, but I think they left. The whole time they're hiding on the roof of her house. She is a big fat liar. In fact, but let me read to you this one part. This is in Joshua chapter 2. She says this to the spies that come, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, when you were utterly destroyed. Do you understand that she says, we heard what the Lord did when he dried up the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. Do you know that that was 40 years before this? 40 years they had heard and known that this had happened. You know, sometimes people will say, I don't understand how God can just like wipe out a whole nation of Canaan. As if God didn't even give it a second thought, if he didn't ever give them a chance. Well, we see right here, just in Rahab's story, that they had 40 years to repent and turn to God. 40 years. And what we see here is that Rahab did in fact, what God was saying is, if you turn from your ways and you turn to me, I will spare you. Because Rahab is spared, not only spared, included in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? I love that. You know what? Rahab lied. Sometimes people will say, well, is God saying lying's okay? No, he's not saying lying's okay. He's saying she did not have perfect faith. Who does? Do you all have perfect faith? She says that there was no more. It says, as soon as we heard this, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in heaven and above, heaven above and the earth below. She has an, a, a moment where she says, your God, he is God. She turns from her pagan ways and says, your God. And what she says is, we heard this. We didn't have any more courage. We had no more strength or spirit to fight. And that's a good place to be, to let God take over, to come to that place where you say, I can, I'm just, I don't have any more courage to fight or keep on fighting without God or even against God. I surrender. And God says, that's a good place to be. And Rahab, an, uh, another notorious sinner, included in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Then it says, Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. 
another woman. Now, Ruth, she's not a notorious sinner, but she is also not a Jew. She's a Moabite. You remember Naomi, who was a Jew, went to the land of Moab in search of, well, she went with her husband and her sons in search of food. And along the way, her husband dies, but her two sons had married two Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. Thank you, not Oprah. I already forgot it. What was it again, Jeff? Orpah, thank you. So in, in the course of time, both her sons die, and now she's left with two daughter-in-laws, two Moabite daughter-in-laws. She says to both of them, I'm going back to my people, but you should stay, go back to your father's houses. And so they, they say, no, we're going with you. But eventually she does convince Orpah to go, but Ruth says, no, I'm going with you. I'm going wherever you go, I'm going to go. Um, and they go back together, and she stays with Naomi. In fact, she is instrumental in Naomi's survival because when they get back into um, their land, she actually is the one who goes out and, um, and uh, gleans in the, the fields of Boaz, who is a distant relative of Naomi. It's a beautiful picture of what we call the king's... The king's uh, Kinsman Redemption, Redeemer. I just, I've used up all my words on the first service. <laughs> if you've never read the book of Ruth, go, just go, and it's, it's a handful of chapters. It's an amazing story. It's really beautiful. Um, but here we have, again, in the, in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, a Moabite woman by name included there. And then it says in verse 6, And Jesse begot David the king, the, the, David the king begot Solomon, by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Who's that? Yes, you guys have read this before. Bathsheba, you see, you know that story. It says, In the springtime when men go off to war, David stayed behind. And he was on the rooftop of his castle, looked down, and he saw a beautiful woman bathing, and he said, Hubba, hubba. And he went and sent for her, and he lay with her, um, even though she had a husband, um, Uriah, you know, um, who was in his army, who wasn't a Jew, by the way, also. <clears throat> and so it turns out that Bathsheba gets pregnant. And so David says, hmm, I know what I'll do. I will not be honest and come clean. I'll try and cover up my sin by um, bringing in Uzziah from the army and, and getting him drunk uh, so that he goes home and, and lays with his wife and then she'll be pregnant and then I won't have to tell anybody. I said, there must have been a thousand people that knew really. I mean, he's the king, but, but that was his plan. Ultimately, Uzziah was a man of honor and would not go back to his home. He slept on the, the stoop of the castle saying, how could I go back and sleep in comfort with my wife when the, the men that I serve with are out in the battle? And so, so David is just like, oh, fine, I'll just kill him. And, and that's exactly what he does. He commands the army to pull back and leave Uzziah out, stranded on his own, and he's killed in battle. And after that, he's able to take Bathsheba as his wife. And the way this is worded, actually, it doesn't actually name her. So when I read this, it says, by her who had been the wife of Uzziah, it's almost as Matthew is pointing out the sin of David in that situation, more so than Bathsheba. But Bathsheba is still considered a notorious adulterer. And here she is 
in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Four women. Four, three notorious sinners included in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And I think that is really incredible. But two things come to mind. Like since Matthew wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we can say that Jesus is not afraid to be associated with notorious sinners. Oh, I'm so glad because that's me too. In fact, he was so okay. That's why he came. We're going to see in Matthew where he goes, uh, he goes to have dinner with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. And the Pharisees come and they see him sitting there. And it's like, how can you have dinner with these sinners? And he says, this is why I came. The, the healthy don't have any need of a doctor. I came for those who are sick. I came for sinners. But we see that he's not afraid to show that they are a part of his line. I'm so glad because, because I'm that. In fact, I kind of like to think about it like this. Like I kind of like to think about it now. I'm a part of that genealogy, not leading up to Jesus now, but leading from him. As if there were another chapter that, or part of this genealogy that said, and Jesus begot Aaron and Rick and Jeff and, and Julie. And maybe people would look at it and group me in with Tamar and Rahab Bathsheba, but I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. Now, secondly, what I see here is God can and does take unlikely people and use them to accomplish extraordinary things. That's so cool. God is so cool. I don't wonder if it's, I don't think it's bad to say God is cool. I just think that it's really cool. So, where did I get to? I read through this whole thing, so I'm not reading these crazy names again. <laughs> uh, let's see. So, verse 16, it says, And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Something really interesting. You see, what he doesn't say is Joseph begot Jesus. Joseph didn't begot Jesus. Joseph adopted Jesus, but Mary begot Jesus through the heavenly Father and the Holy Spirit. Um, and, and maybe you're not grasping the importance of this, but let me cue you in on a little thing that I read that was very interesting. You see, in Joseph's line, you can see it here, there was a king, Jeconiah, or had a similar name also, that was, that was wicked and God cursed him and said, no one from his line will sit on the throne. Now, if you were to, by blood, chase Jesus back through Joseph, who is in the bloodline of that evil king, then you could say, ha-ha, Jesus can't be the Messiah. He can't be king because he shares blood with the evil king that was cursed. Thing is, he didn't have any of Joseph's blood. His lineage was legal standing, but not bloodline. His bloodline went through his mother, Mary, who incidentally is also in the line of David, in case anybody wanted to say, well, he's not really in the bloodline because David's not his real father. Oh, but Mary is, and she's through a different way to David, not through the evil king who was cursed. And I think, man, God thought of everything. 
It's as if he knew it all from the beginning to the end. (laughs) I love that. And it says that he, uh, that Jesus was born of Mary. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations from David until the captivity of Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity of Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. Now that's actually not true. There are more generations in there. What Matthew was saying here was that he was, he was saying, I'm breaking it up into 14s, which is how they actually memorized scripture in groups of 14. So he was saying, look, I'm not highlighting everybody. And this was super common to not list every single person in the genealogy, but rather to highlight the people that were significant, at least in your opinion, when you were writing it down. Um, And so he was like, these are the significant people in the genealogy of Jesus Christ in groups of 14, three times. Um, And I think that is so interesting that in that that, um, non-exhausted lineage of Jesus, the genealogy broken up into three groups, he still puts in those four women that we just discussed. And I think that is so significant that he would do that. You know, there are some, uh, no? Okay, we'll go on. Now, (laughs) verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. All right, so let me just briefly explain what their situation was. There were three phases to a, kind of a, a marriage relationship. The first one was that they would be engaged. Now, engagement doesn't work like we uh, think it does here now, um, but rather engagement was an agreement between two families very often where the one family would say, well, we have a daughter and you have a son and wouldn't this be a good match? So let's, get, let's engage them to be married. And it could happen as early as like, four or five years old. You could be sit, they could be sitting in kindergarten and they'd be like, we're engaged. <laughs> <laughs> what that meant was that there was an, agreed, an agreement between two families regarding their children. And usually it was, well, you know, we have a daughter, you have a son, you're wealthy, this would be a good match. Engagements were broken often because what would happen is that family that had money, would something would happen and they would lose all their goats and not have any money. And so then we were like, I'm not marrying my daughter to a goatless family. (laughs) Uh, And so you would break the engagement. So that engagement would be from the time that you made it all the way up until the time of marrying age, which would then they would enter into something called a period of betrothal. Now that's marrying age for a girl at this time was maybe 15, 16 years old. The uh, time of betrothal was, uh, that was much more serious. It was actually like being married. In fact, in the time of betrothal, you were considered husband and wife, although there was no physical connection, no physical intimacy involved. You didn't live together, but you were considered married in the sense that you were going to be married, and it was about a one-year period of time. Um, This was the time where the husband-to-be would start building a house for you to live in, and oftentimes he would go and build on an addition to his father's house that then when he would get his bride, go and collect his bride, when they were married, they would come home and then they would live in that room connected to the father's house. Now, 
Jesus would say um, that he was the bridegroom waiting to come and get his bride. You know, the bridegroom on the day of the wedding could come at any time. Nobody knew except for him. Nobody knew what time the bridegroom would show up. And so they all had to just be ready. And oftentimes, because the Jewish day starts in the middle of the night and goes around to the next middle of the night, he could come. He probably was anxious. Let's face that. He's probably anxious. He would come in the dark. You know, before it was light out, he might come at one, two, three in the morning. They had to be ready, which meant they had to have lamps waiting for him to come, which means they had to have oil in their lamps. And when the Bible says that we're supposed to have oil in our lamps, that means that we're supposed to always be ready for the return or the coming of the bridegroom. We're all the bride. Sorry, guys, you're the bride. Get used to the idea. Although I don't want to see any single one of you in here in a dress next week. (laughs) We'll have a different message. (laughs) And so... It's a beautiful picture that he gives us that says, as the groom could, the bridegroom could come at any time to get his bride and take them home to be together in the house that he built upon his father's house. So too, we wait for the return of our bridegroom who could come at any time and we must always be ready. And he said, I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus said this of uh, him and us. I go and prepare a place for you that where I am there you may be also. And he says, in my father's house is many rooms, meaning I have built on many rooms onto my father's house where we will all live with him together as the bride of Christ forever. And we are simply just waiting for him to come, the bridegroom come to getting his bride. Are you ready? Is is there oil in your lamp? Is there oil in your lamp? This is the time that Mary and Joseph are in there in the betrothal period, which means it's serious. You could not break a betrothal without writing a letter of divorce. That's how serious this was. There was the only thing that hadn't happened yet is you were not together physically. That did not happen until after the wedding ceremony when you were then married. And that was the third stage. They're in the betrothal period, which means they're essentially married, um, but they still have the, the marriage, the celebration, the, the wedding to go to. It's at this time that Mary was betrothed to Joseph Before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. So in this time of betrothal, this serious commitment to this man, Joseph, Mary is found to be with child. Huge scandal right here. Huge. In fact, Mary's very life is at stake at this point because she could have been executed for becoming pregnant with someone other than your husband. Yeah, you have to understand that when you read in Luke that Gabriel came to Mary and said, this is what's going to happen. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and you're going to become pregnant. For Mary to say, okay, I I will do that. She was saying, I have just laid down my life for God, for the sake of this child that you say I'm going to become. Because every hope and every dream I've ever had is probably gone. And my very life might be taken from me. But let it be done to me, she says, as the Lord wills. That's so significant. 
It's at this time that this happens. And then it says, Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. And we don't know a lot about Joseph. We know just a couple of things. He was married to Mary. He was a carpenter. He was a just man. We don't even know how old he was. Joseph completely goes off the scene somewhere along the line. We know that he was there until Jesus was 12. Beyond that, we don't ever hear of Joseph anymore. He could have been 50 he could have been 50 years old when he was married to Mary. I mean, we don't know. We just assumed they were this nice young couple together building a life. But, you know, he probably would have been married by 50 anyway. So he probably was young. Just put that image right out of your mind. (laughs) But we do know that he was a just man, it says. He could have thrown her out onto the street and made a big spectacle of it to save his own reputation. But what he said was, how can I end this betrothal, this relationship, but not make a public spectacle of her so that she's harmed in any way more than will probably likely happen anyway? And I think there is a beautiful, beautiful lesson in that. As I was studying this, I came across a quote by Charles Spurgeon. It says, when we have a severe thing to do, let us choose the tenderest manner. When we have a severe thing to do, let us choose the tenderest manner. And have you ever had in your life uh, like a hard, dis- a hard conversation that you knew you were going to have to have with somebody? Um, I- and what Charles Spurgeon is saying is when you come upon that time, what's the tenderest way that you can go about it? I read this this week and I wrote down this little quote and then God said, let me test you in this way. <laughs> I'm sorry to say I did not do well on this test. Uh, I came home the other day, and my neighbor had decided to plant a hedge between our houses. Uh, my house is this close to, the, to his house. Like, we're this close, a little bit wider. And, and my first thought is, what did I do? That you would need to put up a hedge so that you couldn't see or hear me the six days a month that you live here. And number one, I was hurt, and I was mad. Because I was like, who's going to maintain this side of the hedge once it grows up? Do I now have to cut this side of your hedge? I still hope he does. I still hope I don't have to. As, you know, as much as I've come to grips of it, I don't want to cut his hedge. But, and I was, I was mad. I, and I was like, I'm going to handle this. Not in a tender way. <laughs> and I, I stormed up and down my house. And I was saying to my poor wife, I was just like, can you believe? And look at this. And what the, and, and look at this. And look, that hedge right there. And it's only this high right now. It's the same hedge I have in the back of my house, which is about nine feet high. I'm like, it's going to be nine feet high or else why would he build it? It's not for decoration. He's trying to block me. I just need a second. So I know people. So I pulled out my phone and I texted the HOA board vice president, who's a friend of mine. And I said, my neighbor just put in this hedge. And did you see this? Did you have to approve this? You know, because the HOA, it says they have to approve all landscaping or else you have to tear it out. Because I live, you know, in an HOA uh, run development. And I was like, <laughs> I'm going to get you in not tender way. I know, I'm horribly flawed. This is your pastor. (laughs) So, um, later that night, 
after I had like come down from, you know, the moment, uh, I got a text from my friend on the board who said, sorry, it's late. I'll look into it in the morning. And I was like, oh, no, no, it's all right. You know what? It's no big deal. It's no big deal. I, I really don't want to cause anybody any trouble. It's just a hedge. Um, and, uh, and I thought, man, I bombed that test. I just, there, there, I, there was, I could have done that any number of ways. I could have even waited and, 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 and gently gone. I didn't go to his house because I wouldn't have been like, hey, neighbor, how's it going? I would have been like... You know, the fact is, and I'm even ashamed to admit this, I immediately looked at the, oh gosh. <laughs> I looked at our, um, to see where the, the border was of my property to his property. I was like, it looks awfully close to my house. This looks way too close. Do you know when I looked at it, in fact, he went way closer to his house, you know, on the, on the, on the borderline there. And so, I mean, there's probably any number of tender ways I could have done that. And I did none of those. Uh, until later when God was like, really, is that the uh, tenderest way? And, and so don't do as I do, do as I say. <laughs> when you have a severe thing to do, let, let us choose the tenderest manner. Joseph could have handled this any number of really harsh ways, but he tried to do it in the quietest, most gentlest way. I, honestly, I do believe that he loved Mary and did not want to see her come to any harm and thought, what is the tenderest way that I can do this? And I think it was weighing on his mind when he's made the decision, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just have to not, I can't marry her, um, so I'm going to have to put her out quietly. And he's thinking about this because then it says in verse 19, then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, he didn't want to make a public example. In verse 20, but while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you, marry your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And so I think that he's thinking about it all day. What am I, how am I going to do it? I can't marry her now. She's pregnant by somebody else. I want to do it real quiet. He goes to bed and an angel of the Lord comes to him with this information. And I don't know who that angel was, but I have a pretty good guess. Anybody think they know who that might have been? Gabriel, probably. I mean, Gabriel's the one that went to Mary. He went to Zechariah. Gabriel's kind of that messenger that comes to people. So it doesn't say it and it doesn't really matter. I just think it was was Gabriel. (laughs) He comes and he says, Joseph, the baby is from the Holy Spirit. Don't be afraid to take her as your wife. And then he says, and she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. He says, Joseph, you're going to name this baby Jesus. Now, in case you don't know, Jesus is a Greek name of the the name Joshua. But Joshua even is a contracted name. Like if your name was William and people called you Will, his actual name is Yehoshua. Yehoshua, which means, I forgot, Yahweh is salvation, Yehoshua means Yahweh is salvation. And so when people say, uh, um, well, his name wasn't really Jesus. Well, yeah, I, I mean, it was just in Greek. Okay, his name was, and they, if, if someone says, well, his name wasn't really Jesus, and, they, and, and ask them what it was, and when they say Joshua, go, well, not quite. <laughs> Yehoshua. 
In fact, I, I, I had heard of somebody saying, you know, Jesus, that, his name wasn't Jesus. So when you pray to Jesus, you're not really praying to him. And he's like, oh, what was his name? Well, I can't tell you. <laughs> you have to come to my classes. <laughs> like, no, 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 no. I just open up the Bible and it's there. And I mean, what, Matthew didn't get that right? I'm not sure about it. Plus, you know what? If um, you were to talk to me and like we had just met um, and I introduced myself as Aaron um, and then in the next sentence you called me Eric, I'm not going to be like, you talking to me because that's not my name. So even if that was true and even if his name wasn't Jesus and you're praying to him, it's not like Jesus is going to be like, I don't know who you're praying to. My name is Jehoshua. <laughs> that's nonsense. <clears throat> But look at this part. He says, his name will be Jesus, for he will save his people from the Romans? Oppression from other governments? No. Their sins. He says, Jesus is going to come and save them from their sins. Because that's what we really need. Because we're all born with a sin nature. We're all born with a need for a savior. That's why he came to die for our sins, not to free you from an oppressive government system, but to save you from the, your sins. Do you believe that? Jesus asked that question. He says, if you believe in me, you will be with me and have eternal life. Do you believe that? Do you? Yes. Amen. If you don't, if you're not sure, please come and talk to me or Pastor Jeff after service today. We would love to talk to you about what it means to believe that Jesus died for your sins. And it's not that he's waiting to do it. It's not that he's saying, oh, well, once you agree to this, then I'll die for your sins. He did it already. It's done, completed. He said on the cross, it's finished. All he says is, do you believe that? Then he says in verse 20 and 22, so all... This was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. First of all, in verse 22, Matthew says, This is fulfillment of prophecy. So now he's moving away from he can be king because he's in the line of David to because he's in the line of David, he can be the Messiah. And because he can, now I'm going to show you how he has begun to fulfill prophetic messages about the Messiah, saying that he will be, so him coming, being born even in Bethlehem is one of the prophecies. The Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. At the time, there was like 200 and, I forget that. Jesus, you know, fulfilled 300 messianic prophecies. Did you know that? 300. 300 messianic prophecies. You know what the, you know what the, the probability of one man fulfilling 300 messianic prophecies would be? No, I don't know. But they did set out to prove how, what the probability would be to just fulfill eight. And here's the result. It's kind of a word picture, so this will help you. If you were to take the state of Texas, everybody familiar with the state of Texas? If you were to take the state of Texas and cover it three feet deep with silver dollars, cover every inch of it three feet deep with silver dollars, then you took one silver dollar and put a big black X on it and then mixed it up somewhere in the entire state of Texas 
in that pile three feet deep of silver dollars and then asked your friend to come to Texas, put on a blindfold, search around blindfolded the entire state of Texas and pull out the first time that coin with the X on it, that's the probability of fulfilling eight messianic prophecies. Jesus fulfilled 300. Does that blow your mind? I get all tingly just thinking about that. Matthew's going to go and show us. He's going to say some one of his favorite phrases, so that it might be fulfilled, so that it might be fulfilled, saying that Jesus fulfilled this prophecy. He fulfilled this prophecy. He fulfilled this prophecy so that you can know that he is the Messiah. And then he says, you'll have a son, and they show, this is part of the prophecy. The virgin shall bear a child, a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. <sighs> Wait a minute. <laughs> Didn't the angel just say you're going to call his name Jesus? How come Jesus wasn't named Emmanuel? Is that confusing to anybody else? Just me? Can we skip that part then? No. Here, listen. There are many names given to Jesus in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Isaiah prophesied that he would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Luke, in his gospel, records that Gabriel came and said that he will be called the Son of the Most High, the Son of God. The prophet Jeremiah gives us the name of the coming Messiah, and he says, and this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. There are many, all of these things are names that he would be called just like, the, like, my name is Aaron, but you can call me sometimes pastor. You might call me friend. You might call me dad. You might call me brother. You might call me Aaron. <laughs> Preacher man, I've gotten that before. Those are all things that I can be called, but my name is Aaron. Understand? There's no contradiction here. His name will be called Jesus, Yehoshua. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife. And he did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. One little thing that I just want to point out in that verse, and there was another verse that I'll go back to also. It says, and he did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn. And also look in verse 18, that Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child. These are two verses that help you to understand that Mary was a virgin when she conceived and gave birth to Jesus, and that was it. From that point forward, she was not perpetually a virgin. This says that he did not know her until she gave birth to Jesus. But beyond that, she did not remain perpetually a virgin. And I think that part of that has to do with the fact that there's some elevation of Mary um, to some people. And there, there is no need to, to try to elevate Mary by saying that she was perpetually a virgin. Mary is an amazing woman who was chosen out of every woman alive at the time to be the one through which Jesus would be born. That's enough. That's enough to, 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 to honor her. But she was not a virgin her entire life. The Bible does not support that. 
Now look at this last part, and this is my, one of my favorite parts. It says that after he was born, he called his name Jesus. Now, you know, the angel came to Joseph, and he said, Joseph, when this baby's born, you're going to call his name Jesus. Now, we know in Luke, it says that Gabriel came to Mary and said, Mary, when this baby is born, you're going to call his name Jesus. And I imagine, you know, like... The, the, the angel came to Joseph and he said, Joseph, the baby that she's going to have is from the Holy Spirit. Like, did she not mention that part? When, when, when she was found to be pregnant and Joseph was like, you're pregnant? Did she not say, oh yeah, but it's the Holy Spirit's baby? <laughs> or did he not believe her? Maybe that, was, maybe that was the thing. It was like, before he was just upset because she had gotten pregnant by somebody else, but, but she was like, oh no, it's the Holy Spirit's baby. She's like, now you're crazy. Now I have to divorce you because you're a lunatic. For some reason, the angel felt like he had to explain. No, it's from the Holy Spirit. Now, Joseph comes to Mary and he says, Mary, I had a dream last night and an angel came to me and he said that the baby that was inside you was from the Holy Spirit. And Mary's like, duh. But he says, no, he told me what we're supposed to call the baby. And Mary would say, he told me what we were supposed to call the baby. And they're like, oh, what did he say? No, what did he say? What did he tell you? Let's say it at the same time. One, two, three, Jesus. (gasps) What, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? (laughs) Confirmation of, of, of this amazing message from God through the angel that what they were doing was, what they were involved with was something divine, something greater than themselves. And that's so cool. I'm excited. Can you tell? I'm a little warm. Next week, we're going to jump in chapter two. The wise men come. You know, it's really funny. Um, Every single nativity scene I've ever seen has got like shepherds and like goats and cattle and the the little box with Jesus in it. And the wise men are all there as well. But they were there so much later than Christmas Eve. They weren't there. It was like like maybe years later (laughs) Uh, because they were now in a house, not even in the manger. But anyway, we'll get to that later. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for this beautiful morning, this time of worship together, Lord, of prayer, of of Bible study. Uh, Lord, I just thank you, and uh, I'm amazed. I stand amazed, Lord, that you would choose to use someone like me, someone who's so flawed. Uh, But Lord, I'm glad you did. Uh, Lord, I pray every morning that I would surrender and and lay my life down for your sake and, and for your direction. Lord, I pray for anybody here who does not uh, understand or believe that you've already died for their sins and have forgiven them, Lord. They need only to believe that. Uh, Lord, I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit this morning that you would make it known to them, that you would press in on them, Lord, that they would begin to question um, and come and find me or someone and say, can you explain this Jesus character to me a little more? Oh, Lord, please don't let them go out without knowing you. Lord, Lord, I just ask your blessing on the remainder of this day, uh, on this new year. Lord, I am excited to see what this new year holds. But Lord, I pray that I will have oil in my lamp prepared for your return at any time now. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.